Welcome to Regulate Tech. This is our eighth episode of 2022, and we've got a special treat for you. We're going to dig into uh, a bit of, of uh, news, the online safety act bill, bill thing. Bill at the moment. Bill, bill has been uh, recently published and our own Richard Allen has read it deeply and uh, with great joy. And so we're going to talk about this. But before we do, let's talk a little bit about the antecedents. We've talked, we've talked about it in a previous session, but, but we should set the stage. We should sort of give people an idea of what's going on here. So at some point in internet history, suddenly there was an urge to make a distinction between illegal content and content was perfectly legal but harmful. When did that happen, and what's going on here? Yeah, so, so I mean, the, the history. So, so this bill is being sort of touted, and I'll sound effect flick through two hundred and thirteen pages on it. There you go. That's the that's <laughs> the noise of two hundred and thirteen pages. <laughs> <Yes>. um, <laughs> but the, but this bill uh, is being touted as kind of the world's first to to do the thing that it's doing, and and um, and there's a kind of sort of yes and no answer to that. I think what's what's happened is there's been a sort of creeping. Uh, uh, sort of in, in intrusion into the space of essentially, I mean, what the bill does is it tells certain internet companies how to run their businesses <laughs> in pretty sort of, you know, uh, comprehensive detail. It's going to tell them how to do that. And and that's a sort of culmination of lots of different attempts to do that. The starting point actually was um, in the early days, we wanted to enable internet companies to grow. That was the ethos. And so you got regulations uh, in the US and in Europe that, that essentially said, look, internet companies, in order to enable them to grow, we're essentially not going to make them liable for content. We're going to give them these, these exemptions from liability unless and until they're made aware of something illegal. So we were very comfortable saying, you know, the internet platforms are not themselves responsible, except in the circumstances where they're told about something illegal. Um, and in the US, we had the CDA 230. And exactly. Uh, yeah, the E-commerce directive. directive. Yes. Yeah. And, right, and right. so, and so um, yeah, we're, we've got that sort of status quo. And then what happens over time is, you know, there are genuine public concerns about some of the content on services. Sometimes that's about stuff which is illegal. Uh, and so we've seen a gen general sort of tightening up. Uh, and you've got something like the Network Enforcement Act in Germany, which has been there a few years now. And the Network Enforcement Act sort of took us one stage further and it, it told internet companies, again, how to do their business, but only in respect of content that was actually illegal in Germany. So the Germans were saying, look, you're allowing too much illegal content, so we're going to tell you how to handle that illegal content. But it didn't take the next step that you just described of sort of going beyond illegal content into content that is harmful but not illegal. And that's actually quite a big bucket of content because certainly in most countries that respect human rights and freedom of expression, the, the definition of what's illegal speech is tends to be actually quite narrow. And there's a lot of stuff that people don't like or that they feel is harmful that, that will certainly not be illegal. I mean, for example, in most countries in the world, lying is not illegal and therefore fake news is not illegal. Again, interestingly, uh, Singapore... <laughs> did bring in a, a bill which has got a very, very long name, which is all about proliferation of misinformation. And that bill, again, sought to tell internet companies how they have to handle fake news content. But that's on the basis that they have criminalized effectively the kind of speech that is fake news, whereas that speech wouldn't be criminalized in, in most countries in Europe. Uh, um, so you've ended up with, let's say, going from trying to give internet companies as much freedom as possible from liability through making them much, much more responsive and liable for illegal content to where we get to today, where the online safety bill does all of that and says, but we want to you know, to tell you how to run your businesses in respect of a broader range of content. And then the other critical shift that's happening is a shift from reactive to proactive. So that first model I described was essentially saying, look, this is what you've got to do when you're made aware of content. A lot of what the online safety bill is doing is saying, look, you know, never mind <laughs> reacting to stuff. Here's a whole bunch of duties where you have to come to the regulator and you have to do all of these things and show the regulator that you're doing all of these things, risk assessments and having policies in place and all these sort of things, in, in a sense, as sort of preventive, proactive measures. So it's going beyond just thinking about how you react to the bad stuff, but how do you prevent the bad stuff in the first place? And a great big chunk of the bill is all about that. 
Yeah, and we should we should give people a few concepts here to to uh, help them navigate the literature on this. Uh, the model you first describe is usually referred to as notice and takedown. Um, yes. Or even notice and notice. When somebody tells you there's bad stuff, you tell the person who put the bad stuff up to take it down. So notice and notice, notice and take down. And then there's this this more diffuse area of monitoring, which is which not really notice, but is you have some duty of care now to look at this. And we'll come back to the concept of duty of care. And then there's the notion of upload filters, which has been hotly debated in, for example, the European Parliament, which says that not only should you monitor, you should actually make sure that nothing ever comes up on the website that could be the least bit in this case illegal <clears throat> and that's sort of that that's the spectrum of different regimes that you can mm. expect here but but i want to come back to this because i want to wrap my mind about around so if we have if we have the legal and illegal category that seems pretty crisp and and sort of a good way for a, a legislator to think about content um what is this notion of harmful but legal content isn't that just wasn't that just made illegal by the bill? Well, so the bill makes it tweaks some of the rules around what it's illegal for British people to communicate, and it does that in quite an interesting way. So, so at the moment there are already existing regulations that say, if you, essentially, if you communicate in a kind of horrible, harassing way online, that, well, actually, if you communicate in a horrible, harassing way on the telephone originally, uh, then, you know, the classic sort of dirty phone calls or heavy breathing phone calls that people used to have, that's been illegal for a long time. And then those rules were rolled over so that if you tweeted something horrible, you could be prosecuted already in the UK under something called yeah. Section 127 of the Communications Act. That law is actually pretty inadequate. It's a pretty bad law. And so in, in this bill, they tidy that up and they try and create some new offences about which do sort of change and in some cases expand uh, what's illegal. So, so, for example, there's a specific offence now they're talking about, which colloquially are known as dick pics, but the sending off photos of your genitals to other Cyber people. Flashing is, is Cyber flashing is how it's in the yeah, yeah. explanatory notes. And then the three other categories are worth mentioning. It's harmful right. communication, false communication, and threatening communication. Those are the categories you're thinking in, right? Exactly, exactly. And those are the ones which, in a sense, are tidying up this sort of very catch-all provision that we had, which was not very good and was used. I mean, again, very famously, there was a case where somebody was going to an airport in the UK and fog, I think it was, closed the airport and they, they tweeted, oh, my God, the airport sort of closed again. I could bomb them all. Something like that, you know, like, which is... <laughs> Yeah, patently a joke and ridiculous, and they ended up getting prosecuted, and and, and this is quite a heavy offence, and it sort of went backwards and forwards. And I think that led people to say, look, you know, this this very sort of generic offence, because if you read it, it sort of says anything that could be alarming to anyone, you know, is illegal <laughs> if you communicate it. Uh, and so you you look at that, and you kind of go, no, uh, it needs revising. So there was a, a law commission in the UK. There's a body called the Law Commission, which is meant to be less political and more giving expert legal advice. And the Law Commission looked at these offences and and they produced a report and essentially the government said, look, we'll wrap those requirements in here. So the government is tidying up and to a certain extent extending what is illegal, in some cases making it slightly narrower uh, and in other cases making it uh, broader because there's some new, new kinds of illegality come in. But we're still left then. We're left with a whole bucket of speech, which is not clearly illegal. I mean, if you just take something like hate speech, which we, we sort of think of as a concept, but using offensive language about an ethnic group or a cultural group or religious group, you know, we, it is not clear <laughs> uh, whether or not it is illegal to do that. Normally in, in the UK, for that to be illegal, there's quite a high threshold. And you you would have to be you know, directing at people really in a very specific context. And there have been cases where, you know, far-right leaders have gone to court and they've been accused of, of criminal hate speech, and it's turned out not to be criminal hate speech. Uh, um, and so that's the sort of thing I think they're thinking of when they say harmful. It is, you can certainly say it's harmful. <laughs> you can't necessarily say it's illegal. Or again, another category of content that's very sensitive, very ch challenging is around self-harm. You, you know, the encouragement to self-harm uh, is not necessarily illegal uh, uh, today under UK law, um, but it's clearly going to be harmful. And within that category, there's sort of, sort of again a very broad spectrum from, you know, advice on on very dangerous anorexic diets through to you know uh, actual exhortation to suicide. And there's a very broad spectrum there. A lot of that will be harmful, but not necessarily illegal. 
So the, the, there seems to be the, the, um, the parent paradox of saying that we will now have a law around stuff that is not illegal but harmful that will make it illegal to not do certain things with the harmful content. This is simply because what is happening here is that you're not stating the subjects clearly. Because in the first case, when we say it's harmful and not illegal, that's about the speaker. But when we then sort of regulate it in the law, that's about the platform. So it's there's a, there's an old concept in in intermediary liability um, or concept concept sort of a this idea of making available. Is it around the making available that we're now regulating rather than around the speaking as such? Is there a distinction there that is meaningful? Yeah, I mean, the key to the services is worth, again, just talking about um, scope here. So so what they're trying to bring into scope are, um, firstly, search engines. And so search engines arguably are making stuff available. And again, they have an interesting definition. Lots of this bill, it's 213 pages with lots of definitions. You keep having to jump from clause 23 to clause 186 to get the definition, and you go bouncing around within it. And actually, people are looking at that. I'd recommend the, the explanatory notes. Uh, there are a set of explanatory notes that are quite good for for a lot of the bill although in some places they they leave a little bit to the little bit to be desired there's what one explanatory note on I'll just read this out because it's fun clause 186 functionality the explanatory note is this clause sets out the meaning of the term functionality so it's sort of <laughs> you, you really have to kind of <laughs> dig into it with kind of fine tooth comb so they talk about search engines and they define a search engine or search service as a search engine which allows you or uh, to search some websites or databases uh, and and so it's not just about the sort of Googles and people who try and index the whole web. It's if you uh, uh, allow the search of more than one, they actually they have an explicit exclusion that says, look, if you only search one website or database, you're excluded. But if it's more than one, you're included. So they're saying anyone who, who um, offers a, a specialist search service would be in scope of the bill. But if you have a search box on your website, you're not. So if you if you haven't got that, then then you're in scope. So search services that where you could go on there, type in a search term, and see content from multiple websites and or databases, they will be in scope. So that's a sort of discovery it's piece. Interesting. So it sort of means then that the search box in say a video site that just draws on its own database would not be in scope for the search services as such. No. It, it wouldn't bring them in, but then they may end up being a combined service. There's a whole, whole right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. No, no, just check it. But basically, <laughs> no, no. If you, I mean, I think what they're trying to do, as we, again, if we just sort of step back, and go to the high level, they are trying to exclude certain classes of service whilst capturing, you know, mainstream services that users may go to uh, uh, to either find, discover content, or discover other people and, and right. engage with other people. So, so they want to exclude a single domain website and anything to do with that single domain website, if the website's publishing its own content and people comment under it, explicitly excluding that. So in other words, all the newspapers and all of the all of the sort of broadcasters type websites will be excluded. Uh, they've said things like um, um, uh, TripAdvisor, you know, those kind of sites where they publish a, a directory of services, good services, and, and people can comment on those. Those are all outside of scope. The things that are inside are places where you can search multiple websites and places which they define as user-to-user -user services, deliberately not using a term like social media. So they want to future-proof it. But it basically is a place where users may encounter, which is a lovely word, uh, uh, they may encounter content that has been published by another user. And by using that definition, they're hoping to bring into play all of the social media services, but also things like private messaging services, messaging services where you encounter potentially content from other users. So if we state the sort of strongest possible um, explanation for why this bill exists, it's because they realize that although there is a lot of speech out there that is not or should not be uh, illegal, it was fully legal, it can still be harmful, but that quality of that speech becoming harmful is associated with a certain set of services. If it's in those services, it can actually acquire a harmful nature such that regulation is required. 
Is that right? I, I think it's partly that the harm is in the service, but partly their 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 sort of working assumption is that otherwise it would be unregulated, and that there are other tools to deal with the harmful content in other services. So they're 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 seeing it as a gap, and they're really sort of two primary motivations for this bill existing. Like, why, why is the government taking this on? This really sort of difficult job. They're taking it on partly because of I think it's performance and principle. So performance is that. You know, they do not believe that the big internet services do a good enough job and, and citizens come and complain to them. And so they believe that this legislation will increase the performance or improve the performance of services in dealing with the d- dangerous content, the harmful content. But there's also an in principle argument where they're saying, even if the services were really, really good at uh, dealing with that, we don't want the Silicon Valley executives making these decisions. They shouldn't. They should not have the power to make the decisions over things that affect British citizens. And so, I think where they're looking at it, they're saying, "Look, when it comes to other channels or other kinds of service, we feel that we've already got a reasonable level of control over them. But these online services, we don't have enough control. So, so we are through this legislation very explicitly and very deliberately taking to ourselves." the ability to order these companies to do certain things in order to keep people safe, both because we think it will make them safer and because just as a matter of principle, we think we should, we are entitled, we should be able to give them these kind of orders and instructions. It shouldn't be a matter for them. It should be a matter for us, the British government, when we're talking about something that's so important to the British people. So let's so let's just briefly talk about the genealogy of this bill. So if you were to trace the antecedents in UK law, you would trace them into, from what I understand what you're saying now, you would trace them into media law more than anything else. Is that right? That's, that's right. I mean, it's really interesting. So, so the regulator that's going to be passed, so the, the mechanism is going to be that the politicians, the, the government, will give instruction initially through the bill and then later through the repeat, repeated moments where the government can give additional direction to a regulator called Ofcom. They are the Office of Communications and they were set up as what they call a converged regulator where they combine the regulating of the broadcasting sector, television and radio, with the regulation of the telecom sector and that was done back in the early 2000s. And so they're explicitly sort of giving online services to that regulator. Interesting at the time, when I was in Parliament and involved in the debate, we discussed whether this new regulator should regulate the internet, and it was decided no. You know, very explicitly, we're going to keep the internet out of scope for this communications regulator. Now that decision effectively is reversed. It's gone 180, and we're saying we expressly want them to be in scope. And so they are putting them in the family of broadcast regulators. Again, just as an interesting detail for those who follow this sector, you know, uh, um, uh, online video sharing platforms like YouTube are already being regulated by the regulator Ofcom. Little known, it hasn't caused huge waves, but under a thing with a really boring name, the Audiovisual Media Services Directive, uh, the European Union already created a framework, not as comprehensive or as detailed, but certainly has regulatory oversight of some aspects of video sharing services like YouTube and Vimeo and all of those. Uh, They already fall within scope of Ofcom. So they're sort of taking that model. They've tried it for broadcast regulators. They've tried it for video sharing platforms, and now they're going to roll a broad range of online services in there. Again, very interestingly, big glaring omission, newspapers and magazines, exactly, which in the UK printed publications are not regulated. And actually, there's been a god almighty row for the last few years where on the back of something called the Leveson Inquiry, where some newspapers did some very bad stuff, there's been a big push to try and coerce uh, news publications effectively to to join a regulator, but but uh, it's highly contested area, and essentially print publications are still largely self regulated. They they can choose to join various kind of press monitoring councils and standards bodies, and they get some benefits for doing so. But Ofcom certainly doesn't re- you know regulate anything to do with the printed media, and they would be horrified by the idea they would have a regulator. It does regulate. TV and radio broadcast media, and that's been quite established for some time. 
And the extension then is, if we, if we sort of look back at this, it it um, it reminds me of Ethel de Sola Paul's nineteen eighty four book about uh, the the future of the internet, in which he sort of says that the convergence will lead to a situation where you not only have broadcast, which is one to many, or telephony, which is one to one, but you'll have many to many regulated under, for example, telecoms regulation. Or uh, he he's sort of more pessimistic. He essentially says it's going to be the lowest common denominator or highest common denominator, depending on your perspective, and yeah. that you'll have that regulation applied to all of this sector. So we trace this back in history. We find that it is related to media law. It extends media law. And essentially, this is media law winning over early internet legislation, the intermediary liability provisions in the CDA 230 and the e-commerce directive. So media law is taking over. And and is this, in a sense, the internet arriving at its destination as a full-blown medium recognized by the state as such and regulated as such? I think to a large degree, I mean, the rationale is the same, although though with obviously with broadcasting, you you had a a dual rationale, I think. One of the rationales for TV and radio regulation is that spectrum is scarce and and there's only so much spectrum you could allocate. So you only had a limited number of TV stations and radio stations and you had to decide who would get that precious resource and that resource was owned effectively by the state and then and then given out uh, with license conditions to individual providers. So TV and radio, I think you had this spectrum issue and uh, uh, spectrum consideration, but there was also a very strong view that, look, TV and radio are important in society and the government should be able to dictate standards and there are specific standards for public service broadcasters and news broadcasters and so on. Um, interestingly, in, in, in countries where there's a strong cable market, uh, there was perhaps different kinds of regulation or there was more permitted content on cable because you didn't have the same necessarily the same kind of uh, space constraints as you do with radio spectrum then the internet comes along where there's no spectrum limitation you can you can have as many as you like there's no reason for an internet company to come to the government and apply for a license and therefore no no mechanism practical mechanism for the government effectively to set license conditions but it is still seen as a powerful medium <laughs> And so that that sort of medium power of the medium uh, rationale, I think, is still there. And governments, you know, generally like to control and manage the media because they, to, to varying degrees, because they do see it as important for society, and they do see it as part of their key role in protecting society and protecting society from harm. What we're essentially doing, though, is uh, in a world where internet services have never had to get licensed we're kind of creating a regime in which they are effectively doing that uh they're going to they're going to have to come and act like a licensed tv or radio station if they want to offer their services to people in the uk and again we should uh, just talk about scope for a minute it's quite important to understand that that the bill says look if you're offering services to people in the uk and there will be some attempt to kind of define that more and there'll be a set of guidance. Uh, uh, we, I, should, I should step back once more again and say, look, we've got a framework bill. The interesting stuff is look, they're going to publish thousands of pages of guidance on on everything. And it's the guidance and that's the that's secretary really of who, who is the action? Where is that going? Is it Hofcom or who is, who is publishing it's, the thousands of pages? So it's tiered. So essentially the, the Secretary of State will publish guidance for Ofcom and then Ofcom will publish guidance for the regulated companies. And so there's a kind of tiering. And a lot of what we're going to debate as the legislation goes through Parliament is is how the, that relationship, you know, the extent to which Ofcom is free to produce its own guidance versus the Secretary of State directing it, with a general presumption that it's better for the technocrats in a, in a regulator, independent regulator. I think it's a general presumption of people in the industry that they'd rather have the technocrats in the regulator sort of have a fairly free hand versus politicians, you know, responsive to whatever crisis of the day is happening, uh, dictating things. But in the legislation, it's kind of riddled with clauses where where it sort of says, look, and, and when Ofcom publishes this kind of guidance, it needs to send it back to Parliament and Parliament has a chance to object. Uh, there'll be other things where it sends it back to Parliament and Parliament has a chance to actually review it and amend it. There'll be other instances where uh, they want to send it back to Parliament, uh, but the Secretary of State can intervene and go, no, I don't like it. You've got to rewrite it. And so there's, there's all, you know, again, that's a lot of these 213 pages and a lot of the debate will be exactly how these command and control mechanisms work. Mm. Um, but out of all of that machine will come a bunch of guidance 
And one of the first critical pieces of guidance will be two, two, these sort of scoping questions. One will say, you know, this is how exactly we are defining the the search engines and the user-to-user services that are in scope. And a second piece of that will be, and this is how we're going to decide if you are directing your service at the UK and therefore we think the legislation applies to you. Wherever you are in the world, we are claiming authority over you. And at that point, we're going to send you a letter and the letter is going to say, you must give us some money. We'll get into that, the fees. You're going to have to pay a fee to be regulated. And here's all the duties that you're now going to have to follow as a condition of continuing to offer your service to people in the UK. So it's kind of a de facto way of licensing global internet services for use in the UK. It's not, you know, it's not not your sort of classic form of licensing regime. But if if Ofcom spots that you're offering your service to people in the UK, uh, it's going to send you the notice asking for money and telling you what you need to do. And if you ignore it, uh, then you ain't going to be able to operate in the UK. You're actually going to be in potentially quite a lot of trouble <laughs> under UK law. And so at that point, either you decide to play the game. Uh, and and if, if say to Ofcom, yes, here's some money and I'm going to do all the things you tell me to do. Or you decide to cut your service off from the UK and you put in place a, a what they call a GOIP block. You say, if user tries to connect from UK, say, no, I'm not going to offer my service to you. Or you just carry on doing it and you know stick your thumb up at Ofcom and just ignore them and take the risk. But those would be your kind of three choices wherever you are in the world. So, so you... St- You've said repeatedly that this is sort of this is for the companies. You're regulating the internet companies. You're you're licensing internet companies, and and that the companies are are sort of required to do a, a lot of different things. But at the end of this, it's it's about people, about the, the citizens or users, as we unfortunately call them, and and it's user to user services. So so how how does the bill think about what's the framework in which the bill thinks about? the impact on the individual's right uh, to speech? Because that seems to be, I guess there has to be an indirect effect at least on the individual citizen. And I can see why it's it's sort of, is, is this a conscious choice as well to sort of regulate the companies because everyone is okay with regulating companies and you don't have to have what could be a more complicated discussion about individual speech or how, how does that? Yeah. Because that seems to me to be under-discussed in our discussions so far. <laughs> That's right. I mean, apart from the new offences, which are regulating British citizens, and I just to say a tiny little quirk on that, because it's really interesting to note, is that, um, uh, again, who's affected? So these new offences of sending harassing communications or or sending cyber flashing, all these things, they they cover people who are habitually resident in the UK. So if you're British, but happen to be on holiday, and uh, and you send a harassing message, they'll still prosecute you. They'll consider the offence to have been committed in the UK. Mm. Um, so a person who lives here, normal, not not that you have to be a British citizen, but if you live in Britain. So Nicholas, you as a Swede, if you lived in Britain, went home to visit your family in Sweden, and and broke one of these offences, they would still consider that you've broken British law. You don't get out of it by being outside. If you were a, a Swede who lives in Sweden then no, Swedish law applies and and you can't be convicted of breaking British law for doing something that is legal in in Sweden. Interesting. Um, So so yeah, that's a really interesting little twist on that because again, there were a few cases where people have sent messages. They actually came to court and they sent harassing messages. It came to court in the UK. It turned out that they were on holiday in Spain or wherever at the time. And and that was a defence in court because they had not you know, been breaking Spanish law and they're being prosecuted under British law. Now the bill tries to tie it up. So primary effect on on British people's immediate speech is going to be that they have to comply with these new laws if they're habitually resident in the country. Um, on the sort of more general idea of, yes, it's it's sort of really, really directed at companies. We're going to tell companies in, in a say quite excruciating detail exactly how they should run their businesses down to things like you know if we if you're going to run a proactive content scanning service we're going to have a list of approved content scanning services that you can use and you're going to have to use one of those and we're going to send you guidance on on like a whole range of different things under the under the legislation um, 
where they try and balance this up is they have these very generic catch-all provisions that say, and platforms must always respect privacy and freedom of expression. And and they're going to have this very sort of, you know, positive duty to do that. And this is the bit, again, as the legislation goes through Parliament, we're really going to have to dig into, because I think they're trying to eat their cake and have it too here. They want to say, you know, uh, privacy and, and security, but uh, at some point you have to make a decision. You know, um, scanning everybody's photos is an invasion of privacy, but it may be justified because there are enough bad photos that you're trying to pull out and the photos may be so harmful that it is justified but you you can't say you know i want i want to have the protection of scanning everybody's photos and i want to have the privacy of not having your photos scanned <laughs> like you have to make a decision on freedom of expression they talk about you know content of democratic importance and then they talk about harmful hate speech if you have a far right group those would be the classic scenario that are pushing out some very hateful messaging at some point, you have to decide: is it you know which is more important, the democratic importance that this far right group can express its views about immigration and other things and be out there, or protecting people from the hate speech they're propagating? You you can't. There isn't. I don't think a whatever a Schrodinger social media where the content both exists and does not exist. Like it's got to. You've got to decide and make a decision. And I think that's this is really going to be the interesting area as we go through the legislation to try and put some flesh on the bones of of this idea of you know maximise protection, maximise freedom of expression and privacy because they're going to come into conflict. It can't be costless. It's it's sort of a to some degree it's a zero sum game. You have to give or take on some side in order to get it to work, right? So so um, so it does have an impact on individual speech. It does have an impact on speech being you know or some kinds of communication at least being uh, criminalized. Um, but why don't you just give us a couple of highlights of of what are the provisions? in the bill like let's start with a, a few of them that you think will be yeah. where if you if you were sort of and um, one of the larger internet companies looking at this right now what would your concerns be where would you sort of go like hmm this will be really hard yeah so so i mean i'll um i'll actually start with the one that i think is most positive mm-hmm. uh and i've been advocating for which is that platforms must carry out risk assessments for the kind of harms that they're likely to face on their platforms and that could be generic harms or if they if they offer services to children specific harms for children um and those risk assessments should be shared with the regulator and form the basis of a sort of action plan effectively to deal with those risks Personally, I think that's super positive. It is really, it's sort of, I've felt frustrated over time that I know that services you and I know from being inside, they have really good people, really expert people who spend a lot of time worrying about the risks on the platform. But there hasn't, they're very reluctant to share those for obvious reasons. It's sort of pointing to the bad stuff. It's like to happen that the, famous Facebook whistleblower, the Francis Hogan stuff sort of showed in a sense or reinforced that fear that platforms have because she released into the public domain a lot of material that was about risk assessments. It was immediately taken in a very negative way and used back against the company. So so there's been this you know, real gap between uh, people doing risk assessments inside companies and public discussion about those risks in a, in a constructive environment. So I think having the companies do risk assessments and talk to a regulator like Ofcom, who we should say have a great reputation yeah. as being a very smart, very creative regulator. I think those conversations are going to be really good for the public <laughs> and they're going to make a real difference. That's perhaps the most positive aspect of the bill. And if nothing else, I and mean, we're almost a bit stuck to that, I think that then the bill would sort of make huge progress. So r- risk assessments, those kind of conversations, great. Um, you know, all the big internet companies are going to do that properly because they're not stupid. Uh, uh, it may be an issue for some smaller internet companies, or particularly ones who think, I don't have a presence in the UK, it doesn't apply to me. And that may be some friction there. So that's great. Um, one aspect that, that people are talking about as challenging, but I think maybe oversold, is that the bill does have some provisions for criminal sanctions for executives and people got very excited and gone well this means we can put mark zuckerberg in prison when facebook takes my content down and uh but actually that's oversold if you look at the detail the detail says you know there are some criminal sanctions essentially for non-cooperation and or lying to the regulator so if the regulator 
you know, ask you for information. They say, can you come and share with me information about a particular thing that's happening on your platform? And you kind of go, screw you, Ofcom, I'm not going to talk to you. You might go to prison. (laughs) Or if you go and talk to them and you lie and you give them completely false figures, you might go to prison. But again, I think it's extremely unlikely that any major internet platform is going to say, screw you, Ofcom, and or... Yeah, deliberately lie to them uh, and it would be a test that you actually have to have intended to lie to them as opposed to you you know got a number wrong because of a typo so but you know for that criminal standard you you, for you to put yourself under those sanctions you have to i think be pretty reckless uh, uh as to your you know reputation and and i don't think any of the big companies and on do. criminal sanctions uh, I, uh is there also fines attached to non-compliance So, so there is there on those sort of what they call the information offenses. That's the non-cooperation lying offenses. It could be a fine or a, or a, a jail sentence. Those because those are properly criminal. So I think so I think that's extremely unlikely for any major company. And I've already seen some some complaints that the companies are lawyering up. Well, of course they're they're going to get lawyers in place to help them deal with the new law. So of course they're going to get lawyers, and their lawyers are going to make sure that they you know. Uh, as you and I have experienced, if the Ofcom say there's a 20-day deadline for a 21-day deadline for supplying something, they'll make sure that you absolutely get this stuff right because you don't like that. Now, there's a Look, second set of sanctions. signals compliance rather than anything else. Right? Should it, okay, it's a I really know, weird thing. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, I was just so, but, um, on the, on the, on the um, sort of civil penalties, there are uh, large fines. The ones we're getting used to now of percentages of global turnover, all the stuff we see under GDPR and things. Those um, are really when you failed to do the things that you said you would do. So, so Ofcom can say, "Give me the information, let me in your premises." You know, there's a whole sort of uh, disclosure set of obligations, but they also can issue a notice. Um, and again, a bit like GDPR, uh, where people are used to that under General Data Protection Regulation. They they could look at something you're doing and they could say you're doing it wrong. Your your cookie notice is the wrong color, and we're going to issue a notice saying you must change your color of your cookie notice. And if you don't do that, you can get fined. But there's a whole process that's set out. First, they have to investigate. They have to find that you're doing something wrong. Then they have to issue a notice explaining what you're doing wrong and telling you to correct it. And then uh, at the end of all of that process, if uh, if you've done things wrong, you may end up sort of getting a, a an administrative civil penalty. The same sort of thing would apply here. So again, I think this is more likely. I think the criminal sanctions for a big tech company will almost never kick in. These civil penalties are more likely to be levied. And I think there are three circumstances under which they could be levied. One is, uh, and this is based on experience from privacy and other things, one is accidents. And an accident would be, for example, if one of the things that you've agreed that you'll do is have on a content scanning tool. And excuse me. One day, one of your engineers updates some piece of software, and the content scanning tool breaks, and it's turned off for three months, and nobody knows. And three months later, you go, "Oh, content scanning tool tool has been broken," and maybe because the regulator has had a complaint and they found it's broken. Well, you were in breach of the commitments you made. It wasn't deliberate or malicious, but you were in breach, and therefore, it would be perfectly reasonable for the regulator to find you because you've done that but that's accidental i think the second one is where there's a difference in interpretation and so again the way this is going to work is the regulator is going to issue lots of guidance to companies they in most cases they don't have to follow the guidance but if they do follow the guidance they they should be clear of any penalties they could choose to do it in an alternative way but uh, uh generally speaking i think the expectation is you'll get given the guidance and it'll say this is how you should do content scanning for bad stuff and you'll you'll follow the guidance and and if you've done that correctly you'll be in the clear but sometimes there may be a misunderstanding between the two parties uh, where, where the company thinks that they do it you know using one particular method they're fine the regulator actually says no no when we wrote the guidance we intended you to do something different and again that's quite possible i think quite likely that there'll be these differences of interpretation from time to time between the companies and the regulator over what the guidance means uh the process of agreeing the guidance is supposed to tease that out but it doesn't always and it can be quite complex so that's the second bucket where difference in interpretation and then the third is is, is sort of more defiance is where the regulator asks the company to do something that they think is stupid counterproductive harmful um 
again, I think unlikely that Ofcom will do that, but you can imagine circumstances, particularly where there's a political direction where where the politicians are directing Ofcom to do something and the Ofcom then directs the companies to do something where it may be seen as actually excessive or outside the scope of the legislation. And there the company will be saying, no, I'm not going to do it, fine me, and then I will challenge that process. But I'm, you know, I'm explicitly disagreeing with you uh, in terms of, of something you've ordered me to do. And then as I say, there is a process that's all set out in the law for how the company would challenge that and how you would go to different tribunals in order to do that. But again, it may be that a fine has been levied and the way that this gets resolved is that there's a legal challenge to that. And then either the tribunal will find in favour of Ofcom or the tribunal will find in favour of the company and say Ofcom exceeded its powers or asked you to do something unreasonable or unlawful. Okay. So those so, are the, those those are the are mechanisms. The but those fines, I think, yeah. are reasonably likely. Yeah. So yeah. So uh, let's let's try to see if we can make this a little bit concrete. Assume for the second that the, the online safety bill um, had been in power for the last ten years. Uh, where would we have seen significant difference in how certain issues that were the issue of the day or you know cases or discussions would have panned out differently what 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 would have been different if the online safety bill had been in place from 2008 what what would have been yeah. different in the evolution of the internet overall and in specific cases do you think it's a hard question admittedly um, but, but but i'm curious if we can tease this out yeah, so so I certainly think well well I don't think that the content standards on paper would be fundamentally different because actually again there's a, there's this great myth that we should just keep busting that the large internet platforms operate under American First Amendment rules and they don't. They're, they're all of the content standards of the YouTubes and the Facebooks and things are much 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 more restrictive than uh, uh, U.S. law would allow for, and I think are pretty consistent with what they're going to be expected to do under the Online Safety Bill. So I think the directions and the instructions that are given, at least in terms of what the content standards are, will be pretty similar for the big platforms. Where they'll be very different are the smaller platforms. And although you know services like Reddit are now sort of heading towards, I think, a more mainstream position, historically they were way out there. Twitter, you know, was way out there positioning itself as the free speech wing of the free speech party. And and so I do think that that um, if this had been the case, I think a lot of internet services would not have felt comfortable being offered in the UK. So we might, I think, we still would have seen the mainstream. Google's, Facebook's, Twitter's, TikTok's, etc., will all be in present in the UK. But I think a lot of smaller internet platforms just wouldn't have set up there. They would a have not wanted to submit themselves to UK regulator. They'd say, "Why am I doing that?" And b, in many cases, they would have had standards that would be more permissive. Uh, they would have objected to things like content, you know, content scanning, uh, and therefore, I think they would have chosen stay out. So we'd had a smaller, more concentrated internet market. I think as a result, so that's one piece of it. Um, and then in terms of the actual performance of the companies, while I don't think the standards are necessarily wildly different, the, the scrutiny of their uh, processes in terms of enforcing their own standards has been variable. It's been a mixed bag. And again, you and I know that, that it, uh, um, companies will often uh, put a lot of resources into areas where they feel really under pressure and scrutiny. And they will take their eye off the ball in areas where they don't. So I, I think actually, if the bill had been in force, you know, the UK enforcement of those community standards would have been more robust. The companies would have put more resources in because they they would have known that they would have faced uh, fines if they hadn't done so. Um, so I think I certainly think that would have made a difference in terms of of the resources put into policing just the UK bit, maybe at the expense of other countries, by the way, but they would have policed the UK better. So you would have had more content taken down by the large internet providers and fewer smaller internet providers on the market. And and that would that would presumably then have, have led to to um, a slightly different internet at least you would have you would have noticed if you sort of put them next to each other the the hypothetical counterfactual historical example of the online safety yeah. bill being in power since 2008 and the internet of today then then those are the main differences that you would point to more content taken down by the large platforms more sort of a better performance to your point and fewer yes. small platforms choosing to enter the uk market 
I think that, I think that would have been the case. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think, and again, I think that will still be the case to a certain extent for smaller platforms. But I think the the net of larger platforms has grown significantly. So some of the the other platforms have become more established, which means that, that firstly they have the resources, and secondly they perhaps are more inclined to cooperate and work with the regulator in the UK. But those those would have been key structural. So differences. what about so one argument when when this kind of legislation was discussed early on in internet policy was that. Uh, Yes, you you can sort of talk about taking down the illegal content, or you can even talk about taking down content that is in some way in conflict with the, the content standards, and those content standards can be set in different ways. But what you always end up with is this um, this sort of shadow of a shilling effect. You will get a much much less of a vibrant discussion overall because uh, companies would not be incentivized to allow for that. As, so, as soon as you sort of get close to an edge case, if you have massive sanctions and and possibly <laughs> you're possibly thrown in jail, all though highly unlikely, you're going to be much more restrictive. Do you think that another difference between the two, if you look at the counterfactual, would be that the the sort of set of content that that could have been allowed even under the law, but just presented unnecessary risk would also have been removed? Is that another effect you would expect? Yeah. I, I, well, I think this is going to be crucially down to the guidance that Ofcom issues. So one of the examples I've used and I've been talking about this, which I think is really important, is that we have you know prominent anti-vaxxers in the UK, as I'm sure every country does. And there, there's a guy called Piers Corbett, and he's out every week you know, demonstrating. He's he's the brother of the guy who used to lead the Labour Party, and he's out every week demonstrating very high-profile anti-vax stuff, conspiracy theory stuff. And and so one of the questions I have is, look, look um, in terms of this legislation, the guidance, is the guidance going to sort of steer companies towards removing that kind of content or that kind of not give that kind of individual a platform? Because I, I don't have any doubt that their content could be classed as, as harmful. Uh, if it discourages people from taking vaccines that are going to save their lives, that seems pretty harmful, you know, robustly yes. <laughs> within the harmful bucket. But it's also content of democratic importance, which is the other language they use. And he's entitled to his freedom of expression. And, uh, uh, you know, he is contributing to a political debate representing a reasonable constituency in the UK who agree with him and think that the COVID stuff is all oppression and made up. So which of those takes precedent? I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing the guidance that Ofcom will issue in areas like that, because that's, that's crucial. They could issue guidance that says, look, if in doubt, uh, if you want to protect people like him and you want to protect all the crazies and other people come and complain about the fact you've given protection to all of these people, we Ofcom are not going to penalize you. We're going to say, well done, <laughs> you protected content of democratic importance, and we're going to tell all the complainants that there's nothing to see here. Or if they say, look, if people come to us and complain about that stuff, we're going to come after you and say, why aren't you doing more to protect people from harm? Then the platform's obvious response is going to be, well, I'll just take down more and more of that stuff. So I think it's crucial the guidance that Ofcom gives. If Ofcom says, if in doubt, take it down, that's what the platforms will do. So they don't want to get fined. If Ofcom says, if in doubt, leave it up, then they're going to well, at least have the choice. Uh, they're going to be much more inclined to leave it up. But we need that really clear guidance. And again, through the process of debate in Parliament over the next few months, that's one of the things we've got to challenge the ministers on because the ministers will also be giving their direction to Ofcom. Mm -hmm. So we need to know is, are the ministers saying to Ofcom, if in doubt, leave it up, and then Ofcom will produce guidance that says, if in doubt, leave it up, or is it going to be the reverse? And and we need to know. And at the moment, we're, we're sort of getting both. Uh, we, we love democracy and freedom of expression. We hate harmful content. But we're not getting the two being reconciled using very specific, crunchy examples. So the size of the chilling effect comes down to the guidance that Ofcom gives, and also, I suspect, uh, the enforcement that Ofcom engages in. So you could argue that one thing that would be desirable, actually, is to get a lot of early enforcement so you get clear, strong signals from Ofcom in terms of how they are going to apply this particular bill, rather than, than just issuing enormous amounts of guidance that will have to be read <clears throat> defensively and carefully and, and sort of um, in a risk-averse way, it would almost be better for them to issue a little bit of guidance and then engage a little bit in enforcement so you can so, so you can deduce for yourself how much of a chilling effect you should you should you should suffer or you should absorb or should take on, right? 
Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think one of the challenges we may see is that, uh, and again, we had a little bit of this with data protection regulation, that it, these are these are intended as preventative tools, preventive tools. So, so you know, your ideal outcome actually is that nobody ever gets fined or prosecuted. <laughs> your, your ideal outcome from a public point of view is, you know, Ofcom sends all these information notices out and everybody responds truthfully and willingly and speedily. And then Ofcom issues guidance and everybody signs up and produces their risk assessments and and shows how they're complying with the guidance and everybody is safer and because everyone's following the rules. That's actually the you know by far the preferred outcome. I, and I genuinely think for the large companies, we're likely to be close to that because I say they're all ready for it. Mm. Um, it's not uh, in the same way they're actually they were quite ready for GDPR. They, they you know they were already changed a lot of their privacy practice and things to get ready. So I think they're ready for it. And I think they're not going to want to take the risk. Where we may see enforcement action, which will be helpful, is I think we'll see a lot around the definitions, people trying to say they're outside of scope when they're in scope. And I think we'll see it against, in particular, sort of smaller entities based outside the UK who who want to challenge don't believe this should apply to them. Um, I think I say it's a lot less likely for the big providers. Uh, other than I say this this category of kind of accidental or uh, uh, failure to comply and or uh, you know conflict of interpretation, I think we're very unlikely at least to see deliberate non-compliance for some period of time. Mm. It's more likely to be in these um, accidental or or uh, misinterpretation kind of categories that we see some effect. But you're right, that will help us to do that. And actually, the enforcement against smaller companies will still help us to understand things. Um, you know, I, I, again, in the, in the messaging space, uh, there's a bunch of different messaging providers, some of which are quite big. Uh, but based outside the the UK, don't have any footprint in the UK. Um, you have to think those might be primary targets for an enforcement action, which will then, you know, be read across to everybody in the sector. Um, but those are the sort of things I think where it'll take a year or two for us really to understand what it means through those actions. I think you're right. Okay, so so let's switch perspective uh, two seconds. So we we talked about uh, there's a. There's a ton of guidance coming and the content of the bill is sort of in the guidance to a large degree. You're going to have to see the guidance in order to understand exactly how it is applied. Um, if you're looking at this and and you for a second want to sort of take a critical attitude, you say, this is not enough. We need more. Where are the points where you think the the sort of the the safety maximalists to coin, sort of think about people who really want to maximize safety over over freedom of speech, for example, where would they see this bill falling short? Yeah, I think they might want, I mean, th- this question of criminal prosecutions, they might want to make uh, d- sort of make um, people criminally liable. So, so the, the kind of situation I described where they've turned off the content filter, mm. for example, that there will be criminal liability associated with some of those things. So some of that that non-compliance with the guidance was at the moment that's not, uh, it's not, it's not that you're going to be going after individual executives, that you're going to be going after them much more or you're more likely to be going after them for the failure to cooperate and failure to provide information offences. So I think a safety maximalist might want to to toughen that up. They might they might want to make the guidance mandatory, which is not at the moment. The guidance is is just that. And I say in if you in court complying with the guidance gives you a defence, um, uh, but if you haven't complied with the guidance, you can put up a different system and defend yourself based on that um that there is there's a sort of difference in obligations between the biggest providers and the smallest ones smaller ones so there will be uh i think quite a lot of debate around where those thresholds are set again it's not not defined yet there are powers to set those thresholds um but again if you're a safety maximalist you might reasonably say look there's quite a lot of harm can happen in smaller platforms you might disagree with where those lines are drawn between the extra obligations of the bigger platforms and the smaller ones um there's actually there's there's quite a lot of debate in the bill around age uh, or rather uh, rather than age there's, there's age verification provisions which apply to pornographic sites but there's also identity verification provisions and here they've gone for uh I mean, I'm reasonably comfortable with it. a bit of a fudge where where I think they saw requiring identity verification uh, for user to use the services as a step too far. I think they're right. There'll be a lot of, you know, freedom of expression people and including people in the government party here in the UK who oppose identity cards, for example, who would say, no, you shouldn't have a digital identity card and require people to do that. 
But what they've said is companies must put in place a mechanism to to enable people to identify the, verify their identity and to enable other users to reject content from people whose identity has not been verified. Oh, so you should be able to That's go to Twitter and just just follow the people with the blue check marks. Yes, yeah. So so you must offer Twitter example is a good one. You must offer a blue check mark system and you must offer the users the ability to exclude everyone who hasn't got a blue check mark. Um, which which so arguably there, Twitter already compromise. does because you don't need to follow people who don't have the blue check marks. It's it's up to you. Yeah, right? but I think they'll want a, a toggle, a switch to say nobody's no blue not blue check mark. And I think this has actually come directly from uh, instances on Twitter where in particular sports players have been abused on racial grounds on Twitter. And so I think it's actually that's again, when you look at a piece of legislation, you can always see the, the, the origins behind. of things yeah. that have happened. Yeah. And in that case I think they've learned from that and said, look, I think it's a particular Twitter issue because on, on although it's an issue on Facebook, on Facebook, people are anyway much more within um, social circles of people they know in the real world and therefore they, their identities are verified. I think this will be a challenge for Facebook to implement because they don't traditionally require most people to verify and, and that's say the verification is it is much more i know you mm. <laughs> you know me and we make friends on facebook twitter where it's a much much broader audience this blue check blue tick not blue tick thing is going to be in place and and anyone who offers a user to use the service is going to have to come up with something again what the threshold will will be defined uh, will be will be defining guidance well, that's could, another area where yeah. i think uh, but you could imagine for example yeah. a, a site like facebook just saying that if 10 of your friends really say that you are you then that's enough for them because that's a kind of verification almost like a pgp like i sign your key and the more people who signs yeah. your key the more trust you accrue over time Exactly, and 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 if the regulator allows that, so again, this comes back to the, the guidance. guidance. Yeah, I, yeah. I assume that that's the conversation they'll have. Will the regulator allow that? Will the what will the regulator require? You know, I don't know what Twitter does for its blue ticks. I don't know how they set the threshold, but now they'll have to have a conversation with the regulator about about what that threshold is for you to get a blue tick, or uh, and so there'll be a, a detailed conversation. But again, your safety maximalist might still take the position that no, you should not be allowed on social media or on a user to user service without identity verification right. that could be an area that they they go for um there's a, there's an element there's a, a provision in there which is about making platforms more responsible for dealing with fraudulent advertising so advertising associated with particular offenses under financial services law to do with fraud for financial gain and uh there the platforms will be given new duties uh, uh, again under guidance as to how they have to uh, prevent that advertising getting pushed out in the platforms again based on a very high profile case in the UK around a, a financial expert called Martin Lewis whose whose identity was effectively stolen and used in fraudulent ads and and he's been running a campaign and now uh, they've accepted that but again I can imagine a safety maximalist saying let's roll it out to to much broader classes of advertising not just financial fraud but a whole uh, range of other products um, so plenty of scope um, we should actually talk about uh, uh, the money for a minute. <laughs> yeah, let's talk about the financial Just... impact analysis and you, you know what yes. that says. I'd love to hear more, and I suspect we'll come back to this. By the way, so so do not despair, people. Yeah. You'll get more online safety bill even after this session. But oh, we yeah. should first first let's dive into the financial impact analysis. What? Uh, yeah, let's. let's... Yeah, close 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 on money, but um, yeah. If you want to have a look at it, the impact assessment is great because it gives you quite a lot of detail. For example, it tells you that the government believes that twenty five thousand services, I think it's twenty five thousand one hundred services, will be in scope of the legislation. So that tells you it's not every service on the internet, but it's still quite a sizable community, and it's not just Facebook, Google. Instagram, TikTok, etc. It's twenty five thousand one hundred is their best estimate, and then it tells you that the total costs are going to be about three hundred million pounds a year, British pounds. So that's what what um, four hundred odd million uh, US dollars per year for the year. government, right? Because we're no, 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 no. Four hundred million dollars per year for the companies to do their compliance for those twenty five thousand one hundred some total. Yeah. They're gonna yeah they're gonna end up spending four hundred million uh, dollars US dollars per year, 
and for the cost of the regulation itself, the regulation will cost the government nothing because the companies will pay for it. And it estimates that the fees that they will pay will be £30 million a year. So that's about £40 million odd US dollars. £30 million a year will go from the companies in these fees, which will, Ofcom's another bit of guidance is, uh, is going to be Ofcom publishing uh, how it's going to create the formula for the fees. And it does this for the other sectors it regulates. And that formula will be partly based on worldwide revenue, but they'll Ofcom has the freedom to include other factors as well. So they'll come up with a formula, they'll charge the companies, you can expect Google, Facebook, etc, to be paying potentially some several millions of pounds. Uh, and then a long tail of companies pack, I don't know, 50,000, 10,000, 5,000 pounds, whatever it's going to be, that will add up to 30 million pounds, which will allow Ofcom to hire dozens and dozens of people, actually, they'll have a unit of several hundred people monitoring the companies. Again, to give you a sense of scale, the money they'll get for regulating the online sector is going to be more than they spend in total on regulating TV and radio today. So they'll have a bigger unit regulating online than TV and radio. Um, uh, and, what and is, that's all so what's the Ofcom? So just in terms of comparison, uh, how how large will this make the uh, make Ofcom vis-a-vis say CMA or or any other uh, agency? Yeah. Will it? I, I actually don't know the size of the other agencies. I need to look those up, but Ofcom will be a pretty big regulator. I, I imagine they'll add a you know potentially a couple of hundred more people onto their hmm. roster. Um, but their general principle, apart from they do some competition functions which are paid for by the state, but nearly all of their functions are paid for in this way that the, the telecoms companies pay for their regulation, the the um, uh, broadcasters pay for theirs, and so on. And now the internet sector is going to pay for theirs. The, the regulation actually, just as you, you mentioned that the the model I think that is closest to this, rather than broadcasting regulation, is actually to think of financial services regulation. Hmm. So I think that's much closer where you know, banks and people are required to put in place a whole bunch of systems for, for probity, for anti-money laundering, all of these things. And and the financial services regulator essentially tells the banks, issues guidance to the banks, telling them how they have to do all the things to keep money safe and what reserves they need to have. It's quite an intrusive form of regulation, telling them how to run their businesses uh, if they want to be compliant. And I actually think that is the model. If we want to, if we want to have a comparator, it's much more like the financial services model. And and I say they they tend again to be cost neutral. We are we are going to give you guidance telling you how to run a safe bank. We're going to give you guidance telling you how to run a safe internet service. Uh, you're going to pay us to produce that guidance and to police it. Um, and you are going to inc- incur significant costs purely as a function of complying with our regulation, independently of anything else you do. That's the other 270 million. So 30 million in direct costs to Ofcom per year for these companies. Another 270 million, a big chunk of that is things like they're saying you'll have to have enhanced uh, uh, user operations staff doing more takedowns or assessing more content or running appeals or, or producing impact assessments or producing risk assessments, all of that stuff you're going to have to have that you otherwise wouldn't have had. That's so interesting because you could arguably then, if, if that's the comparison, and I think you're right, I think it's the ex-ante regulation that you find in financial services that is the the most interesting guide to have at the back in, in the back of your mind when you're thinking about how this will actually play out, then you could you should be able to at some point calculate the sort of what's the cost of regulation in different sectors per dollar earned, how much do you actually pay in regulatory yes. costs, and then compare banks, internet companies, telcos, um, broadcasters, and get a sense of of where is where is regulation the most expensive and where is it cheapest. That would be really that's a really interesting question. It would be a good comparison. And then just a note on on the cost again, while uh, no one's going to cry over a big internet company paying several million dollars a year for its regulation, if if the costs are right, and and out of that 300 million, I don't know, a a large platform is maybe incurring 50 million of costs. Uh, That's the cost to the regulator of uh, three or four million, and then a whole bunch of other costs about their compliance costs. That 50 million, say, times you know, a uh, hundred countries of a hundred countries bring in similar regulation that starts to add up, starts to get like serious money. Again, I don't think anyone's going to cry for them. They're going to say that's a, a real cost of doing business, but that's, uh, that is going to change things in the market. You're potentially going to end up with a, uh, 
companies having to pay several billion pounds a year for these regulatory regimes when you factor in the the licensing cost and the and the compliance. No, costs. it also cement the market somewhat because then ending up in this category that pays the most would be really expensive. So it caps growth for some other companies, and you you end up in this situation because you you end up in a situation where you you would expect to see the same market structure that you see in the financial services business, for example. Yeah. Or I think the, the other it, comparator that we talked about before is pharma, where there's also a ton of ex-ante um, approvals of different things. It's not so much approvals here, though. It's more process-oriented. I think you're right. It's it's more around, I want to see you have the processes for AML or, counter, um, or, or counter-terrorism uh, financing um, processes. You're right. It's very much like that. You'll do that. Yeah. And again, on the market structure, again, it's not to, to overstate because you know, they're clearly intending it to be tiered so the biggest companies pay the most. But I think one potential unintended consequence, once a number of countries bring out laws like this, which which uh, is sort of expected, the, the EU has this Digital Services Act yeah. sort of in the pipeline, and, and there's a lot of interest from other countries, countries like Australia and others. It's just when you're setting up a global internet service, even if each of these regulators only wants you know, £10,000 off you and for you to do a few things. If you've got to do that 100 times uh, and you're a small starter, you know, 100 times 10,000 is a million pounds, if I get that right. And so uh, suddenly a million pounds a year plus a lot of fiddly stuff to do to operate in 100 markets. Maybe you say, look, I'll just operate in the five biggest and most lucrative. I'm going to pay £50,000 a year and forget the others. Um, so that's the other thing. I think we just need to think that through over time. Like, is, I don't think that's the intention, but you can clearly see an unintended consequence if they were to very aggressively enforce against companies when they're only just starting in a market, you know, and they, they get their first few users and then they get a letter saying £10,000 and quite a lot of your time. Uh, we'll have to see whether the reaction is, nah, I'll just focus on the big market. It should almost be like a, a, a tenure thing where you know, if you have been around for 10 years, we'll have this discussion, but otherwise you have a chance to grow. Otherwise, you're sort of eliminating a large part yeah. of the advantage of, of the internet, which is this sort of innovation without permission thing that, that has allowed again, I th- for a I lot think of there it. is. Yeah. I mean, I think there is freedom of legislation for them not to do that. So they do have the freedom to exclude people. Um, so, so again, that's all That's all going to be a matter for debate. Like, where are they going to yeah. set the threshold? I'm sure maybe someone in the debate will raise that question about the small internet companies. That sounds like, it sounds like a, a, a very good thing to do. So uh, this, uh, I think you should make your sound effect again. I really like the sound effect. Oh, oh, the, so the, the, that's what more than 250 pages of online safety yes. bill sounds like. And uh, you've just heard the first of what I suspect is many conversations on this. We'll come back to it. And and uh, I hope that you enjoyed it. You can find the podcast on Richard's website, which is www.regulate.tech. And we hope to have you with us uh, next week when we are talking about something completely different. Take care. Bye.